also, I start the book off talking about the city of Chicago. So the city of Chicago is in many ways our most indebted city, with our most indebted school district, in one of our most indebted counties, with some of our most indebted transit agencies, uh, in our most indebted state. Welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe. We are a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, are proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. Pleased to have back yet again my co-host, Chicken Connoisseur, Fiscal Policy Wonk, Baseball Mom, Maryland resident, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. <laughs> uh, thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Uh, just to, to update folks on the whole two rooster situation, we I uh, moved. There's like a pen inside the larger pen now kind of thing going on. So I moved our newer birds, their whole pen apparatus, including the temporary coop, like inside our larger fenced-in area. And uh, while I was doing this, of course, our established birds were walking around and clucking because chickens do not like change. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so now it's kind of like a like jail visitation almost because the, the, the new birds are like inside, you know, the fence and looking through the fence at the other birds wandering around. So I'm hoping that at least this will get them acclimated. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know about having two roosters. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you've uh, much like the problem of overlapping tax bases in local public finance. It sounds like you've created the chicken analog of that. Uh, down on the that farm. is so true. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, when you see the world that way, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to not see the world that way. So, and, uh, and speaking of, we were both, uh, Liz and I both, at the uh, Brookings Municipal Finance Conference uh, last week, co-sponsored by, uh, of course, uh, my employer, the University of Chicago, as well as uh, Wash U, the Olin School of Business, and Brandeis University. Uh, the twelfth year now that that conference has been mm -hmm. going on. It's always uh, always exciting, always an interesting event. Brings together uh, academics doing really great research and practitioners to comment on that research. And there were some really great papers this year and some uh, really fascinating discussion. If you weren't able to check it out, definitely check out the the website, Municipal Finance Conference website at Brookings, and you can see the papers and recordings of the sessions and uh, all kinds of great information. So we're talking uh, today, Liz, about state and local fiscal stress, certainly a topic that comes up often on this podcast, both directly and indirectly. Our guest uh, to talk about all things state and local fiscal stress is Professor David Schleicher from Yale Law School. He has a a book that's been getting a lot of attention in Muniland as of late. It's called In a Bad State, Responding to State and Local Budget Crises. And in this book, he talks about something that we don't spend maybe nearly as much time as we should uh, thinking about when we, when we talk about state and local fiscal stress, and that is the federal government's role. What, what role is it that the federal government can and should play when state and local governments find themselves in bouts of severe fiscal stress? And he'll share uh, what, what he offers up in the book and a really, really interesting conversation about how we might think or even rethink in some ways the way the federal government plugs into this landscape. Liz, we've both done quite a bit of work uh, in our careers on this question of state and local fiscal stress, what causes it, uh, the effects, the, the sort of contagion effects, what happens when you have stress in one jurisdiction, how does that spread to others? 
you know, I've used in my own classes and some of my own research, um, a lot of your work, including in particular your, your classic uh, Seven Deadly Sins of State and Local Governments piece that uh, sort of gets at some of the some of the things that precede the kind of severe fiscal stress that we're talking about, but you've done quite a bit, including some some recent work in this space. So when you know, setting up our, our conversation with Professor Schleicher about the federal government's role, what are you thinking about when you're thinking about interesting variation that we see when it comes to the causes and consequences of state and local fiscal stress? Yeah, I've covered municipal distress for for a while now. Actually, earlier this year, I wrote a a long story short on five things I've learned after a decade of of covering municipal distress. And not not one of them mentions the federal government. (laughs) Right. I mean, we really have not not considered that because it doesn't. In, in municipal distress to play play any kind of direct role, but but states certainly do. Um, one of my takeaways from from reporting is that city bankruptcies are a byproduct of their state. Um, some states uh, allow it, um, and just you you know you can do whatever you want to some extent. Uh, California is probably it, it, that's probably the reason why California has had more than one municipal bankruptcy is that uh, it, the, the state doesn't really step in at all. Pennsylvania, on the other hand, has its whole Act 47 law, which which uh, basically monitors fiscally distressed municipalities, steps in, they can be labeled an Act 47 city and receive extra aid from the state in exchange for um, having a like a, a, a court state coordinator that helps them manage their finances, but not to the level of a receiver, although Act 47 does allow for receivership. Uh, what's interesting to me, too, in terms of Pennsylvania, and this is um, this is true elsewhere, is that Harrisburg tried to file for bankruptcy. It had a receiver appointed and the state basically said, no, 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 no. I mean, it's the state capital, first of all. It looks really bad when you have your state capital go into bankruptcy. But in terms of when Chester, Pennsylvania last year filed for bankruptcy, the state didn't do that. And so bankruptcy is such a case by case basis and a state by state basis. And the so municipal distress is rooted in so many different things. But the the last thing I'll say about it too is that it is definitely it's definitely not any single person's fault or any group of politics. There's no one person to point to, although everybody wants to do that. It is it is a group effort that accumulates over decades of, of really bad decisions. And so uh, it, those are just some of the things I'm, I think about when I think about municipal distress. And that's also why it's so fascinating to me is there's very few kind of broad conclusions, although I, I did I did with I did have five of them, but there's very few <laughs> contradicting myself here. <laughs> but uh, they're they're so individual. It's really really interesting to me that way. Yeah, they're very very context specific. And I mean, an example that you just gave, a point that Professor Schleicher makes in the book that is sort of exactly to this point is that state capitals have been treated very differently with respect to fiscal distress than a lot of other jurisdictions. Certainly, Hartford was another good example that uh, many of us were following. And it, there were headlines to the effect of, you know, gosh, if if every city could get a bailout like Hartford's, we'd see a lot more cities seeking bailouts. And yeah. uh, Harrisburg obviously treated differently. And you know, there's some good reasons and some you know, potentially not so good reasons for state capitals tend to be treated differently. There's obviously very different kind of political dynamic happening in and around them than a lot of other cities. But again, to the point that it's very context specific and each of them has their own 
unique and special circumstances. I think one of the things that we're seeing a lot more research on as of late, and I've been fortunate to be a part of um, a couple of sort of applied efforts in this space, is thinking about how we get a, get out ahead of fiscal distress. I was fortunate to be part of a, a team in California that worked with the state auditor on what became uh, what they called their high-risk dashboard, which is a sort of a monitoring system to look at financial trends in cities and try to identify concerns about you know, where stress may be happening before it gets to the point that there's not much that you can do about it, which is a very difficult thing to do. A lot of the data we have are obviously looking back a year or 18 months, particularly if we're talking about financial statements, audited financial statements. Um, we don't have necessarily good predictive models for, for identifying what is going to lead to or where and when you're going to see stress. But we're also getting better at that. And this is one of those areas where data science and AI and other kinds of new technological applications might help us to think ahead a little bit and anticipate and try to get out ahead of some potential sources of fiscal stress so that we have maybe a different conversation about bankruptcies and fiscal distress in the not too distant future. Well, we're pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Professor David Schleicher from Yale Law School, author of the new book, In a Bad State, Responding to State and Local Budget Crises, that received a lot of attention in the world of state and local public finance. Professor Schleicher, thanks so much for giving us some time today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Professor, I've, I've been looking forward to this for a while. When I saw the first, like the, the pre-release of your book and read the first two pages, I was like, this this is this is going to be awesome. Um, this is very this topic of uh, fiscal distress and municipal distress is very much my jam. <laughs> um, but for maybe for the rest of our listeners, um, can you give us like the thirty second elevator pitch of of why state and local uh, folks should be reading this book? Yeah. So fiscal distress, state and local fiscal distress, is an inevitability in a country with fifty states and. Uh, thousands of local governments. Um, and it's certainly been a very large part of American politics for a very for as long as we've had American politics. Um, and it's always it is always a federal pot problem as well as a state problem for sp specific states and localities, because people who live in local states and state local governments are also Americans and they're also represented in Congress and by the president. And to the extent we have like a public discussion about what the federal government should do in the face of state and local distress it is all built around one question, which is the question of bailouts. Should the federal government bail out? And there's an arguments for and arguments against. And that's a very important debate. And the book talks about that a lot. But it's also the case that the, mo the most common response that the federal government has had to make or chosen to make has not been about bailouts, or not only about bailouts, but instead been about how to allocate the harms of a crisis between um, creditors and taxpayers. That is to say, should the federal government use tools to force austerity to avoid default? or alternately should do the opposite and encourage default a way to avoid austerity. And so that like the the literature and the public discussion has not spent as much time talking about that, although it's been a huge part of our actual policy responses over the course of American history. So you mentioned that the, you're dealing fundamentally with the question of how should the federal government respond and really getting at this difficult uh, trade-off or set of trade-offs that the federal government has to think about when it thinks about responding to state and local fiscal stress. The core of the book is really this notion of a trilemma that you lay out uh, that, that I think really unpacks in a, in a, in a clear and, and tractable way uh, some of the trade-offs that the federal government is facing, not just in terms of who should deal with the pain, so to speak, of 
of a bailout uh, or or default or whatever it might be. But but what are the the federal government's sort of goals and what are some of the inescapable challenges that it's facing in thinking about a response? I wonder if you could uh, just unpack that trilemma for us and and tell us uh, sort of how you landed on on that as the the core conceptual core of this book. Yeah. So trilemmas have a kind of a long history in the study of economics and finance. I mean, the most famous is the Mundell-Fleming impossibility trilemma. For those of you who cross the sovereign municipal debt world, this may be relevant to you, may bring you back to grad school or something. Um, the basic idea in the book is that the federal government has a couple of goal, three goals when dealing when it faces a state and local crisis, uh, but they're not, you can't achieve all three of them. And so the goals are they want to avoid moral hazard, that is to say, they don't, whatever their response is, they don't want it to create another crisis by encouraging profligacy going forward. They want to avoid recessions that state and local austerity can make worse. So state and local defaults almost always happen in the context of a broader economic problem. And then state and local cuts in spending can make that problem worse for Keynesian reasons. Um, and they want to avoid harm to the bond market. And that's like the kind of newest thing. It's like, well, why would they care about that? Uh, creditors, who, who cares about them? They're rich guys, who knows? And the basic idea is that the federal government, or what, specifically, why would the federal government care about them? And the argument is the federal government has, for the course of the entire, uh, all of American history, relied on states and cities to borrow. And they've relied on states and cities to borrow in order to build infrastructure. So why doesn't the federal government borrow and build infrastructure? which happens, by the way, in many other countries. And the argument in the book following uh, kind of some classics in political science, like Barry Weingast's work or John Fairjohn's, is the federal government is the distorted nature of Congress is very poorly situated to invest in infrastructure directly. Um, that in the first Congress, the efforts in the first couple of Congress, the efforts to build infrastructure devolved into kind of a mess of pork barrel spending. Uh, the only things got built were lighthouses because they were everywhere along a coastal country. Um, and in contrast, as a result, kind of the early American infrastructure was largely built by states and then later American infrastructure was largely built by cities and special authorities. And this is because the federal government couldn't quite pull it off to do it itself. On the other hand, the federal government has a large interest in infrastructure. Infrastructure has external effects, not just on the jurisdiction that's building it, but on other jurisdictions. And the federal government wants to encourage growth going forward. And so three goals, um, but they can't achieve all three of them. And why can't they achieve all three of them? Well, they do a bailout that creates moral hazard can't do that. If you encourage austerity, well, that makes recessions happen. I mean, it helps with along the other two dimensions. It helps investors. If investors know jurisdictions are going to buckle down to pay, then they're even more confident and doesn't create moral hazard, but it create, makes austerity worse. And if they encourage default, well, don't have as much austerity to deal with, don't have as much recession risk to deal with, and you don't have as much moral hazard to deal with, but you do have this harm to the bond market. Um, and that is, it's an, an inevitable set of trade-offs. And so across American history, the federal government has kind of landed in different places on this trilemma, but it can't avoid it because it is an inevitable response to the kind of structure of American government and the nature of state and local budget crises. Um, you mentioned bailouts and there's a there's a whole section in the book that you title building better bailouts. So what's wrong with um, how we're doing them or or saying we're not doing them, but still kind of doing them? And uh, what do you propose changing? We've done bailouts in a lot of different ways over the course of American history, from assuming state debts in the Hamiltonian sense to whatever we did with Washington, D.C. in the 1990s to our response to COVID. Um, and so we've done them differently over time. And so there's not one way we're doing them badly. 
I think probably where you're headed is like, what was wrong with our most recent set of federal supports to state and local budgets during in the CARES Act and in the uh, American Rescue Plan? And my answer to that is there's nothing wrong with choosing bailout. The trilemma has three legs and they're all bad. And so bailouts are bad, but so are the other, so is not doing bailouts. Uh, And in the context of COVID, I think it made a lot of sense to offer a lot of aid to states and cities. That said, the argument in the book about this, which is kind of triggers on some of the think values I think should encourage any type of response, whether it's bailouts or default or austerity, is that we didn't necessarily do very much to set ourselves up for the next crisis or to uh, avoid the next crisis. So what was wrong with the ARP aid to states and cities? So one thing is that it was very large. And this is something that people, if we were on a, a podcast talking about macroeconomics, we would focus on a little bit like, d- did the ARP uh, help spur inflation? Was it slightly too big? And it's notable what, why it was so big. Well, the reason it was so big was not only that the federal government wanted to give a lot of money to states and cities, but because they wanted to do bailout in a way that provided as little moral hazard as possible, they gave money to everybody. And in order to give enough money to fill the budget hole of the most hard off jurisdictions, they had to give a lot more money to a lot of jurisdictions to spend on whatever. Uh, and so that was a choice that was meant to minimize moral hazard, but at the cost of making the project much, much bigger. The second thing is that we didn't include any conditions really on how the money was spent. There were some small conditions. The federal government could have used this as a moment to kind of rejigger the incentives facing states and cities in terms of the way they budget and the way they account. And they would have had a great deal of leverage to do so at this moment. And there would be maybe some legal difficulties, but I think you could have gotten around those to encourage states and cities say, you're going to take this money, but we're going to put some conditions on that. And so you could have thought of this coming kind of a couple of different dimensions. One is it wouldn't have been a formal condition, but you could have imagined tying this to um, greater disclosure requirements for states and city. It might have been an optimal time to say, if we're going to give you all this money, maybe it's time to repeal the Tower Amendment and allow for direct regulation of of um, securities issued by uh, kind of registration requirements for um, public securities, uh, state municipal securities. Secondly, you might have imagined really kind of more aggressive conditions. So we could have imagined putting requirements that jurisdictions budget in accordance with GAAP, the way that New York State imposed on New York City in the 1970s um, following New York City's fiscal crisis. We could have imagined something even more dramatic. Um, uh, one of my favorite uh, pandemic era, it was a pre-pandemic era, but had a big effect during the pandemic, was Connecticut p- uh, put covenants into its bonds that imposed a couple of things, but one of them was that held the government to what's called the volatility cap. That is to say, if revenues came in above expectations, the money was automatically sent first to the rainy day fund and then to uh, and then to to kind of to the pension funds or to pay back pensions. And so, this uh, you could imagine the federal government saying you have to adopt a volatility cap in return for being able to issue tax exempt securities and doing it at the same time as this project, saying that if we're going to bail you out. We're going to make sure you do something to avoid crises in the future. Uh, Connecticut, I think, is in many ways one of the great stories of the pandemic era in terms of fiscal responsibility, going from being one of our biggest basket cases to being well less than one of our biggest basket cases. I wouldn't go so far as it's not Utah or anything, but it's a um, uh, but it is uh, I think a pretty happy story from the fiscal responsibility on the fiscal responsibility front. Um, and so that's the kind of things I would have liked to see in bailouts. Some say we're going to give the money, but there are going to be some things attached to this money. The, the federal government, of course, is taking control of the state. 
that that would not go over well. But states, yeah. uh, in the form of emergency managers and receivers, do uh, take over in terms of in times of fiscal distress, usually as a precursor to bankruptcy. Not every state does this, but you, you brought up a couple of examples in your book: <clears throat> Central Falls, Rhode Island, Detroit. Um, I'm covering one now: Chester, Pennsylvania, uh, which is under receivership, and that has to be maybe maybe close to Detroit, but uh, certainly rivals Detroit in terms of the the tension between local officials and the emergency manager. You touch on emergency managers a little bit in the book and you talk about how they displace local governments, but it's not inherently an anti-democratic action. So what, what do you mean by that? So first of all, the federal government does do this with respect to certain special kinds of jurisdictions. So uh, Washington, D.C. had a control board imposed on it. And so the federal government doesn't do doesn't have the power to do this with respect to other types of jurisdictions. On the other hand, they do have the power to create incentives to do it. So the federal government notably provided aid to New York City. When I say it's not necessarily anti-democratic, one thing to note is that people don't have a right to a specific local government. People live in all sorts of different local governments, and there's nothing. There's no constitutional right to you being represented by the government that you are that you're like your existing local government. It's, there's no, there, there's actually some really big legal debates about this, but no such thing exists. Um, and so city, states can create rules to allow for cities to grow, for cities to shrink, uh, even to uh, even for them to cease to exist. When a state imposes an emergency manager, people say this is a real harm to local democracy. And in one sense, it obviously is. People were voting for their local policies, and now they are no longer voting for their policies. And that seems like pretty definitionally a harm to local democracy. On the other hand, it's completely plausible that a government that goes bankrupt is not doing a very good job of representing its citizens, right? So that if you are, you know, if elections are not perfect mechanisms for representing the public interest, they may be on average, but not necessarily perfect. And so if you are a government that is um, somehow systematically unrepresentative in a way that leads to you doing bad things to your residents. It's like not a weird thing in some, in some ways. We're not necessarily anti-democratic to say that this government isn't the one that is doing providing a better representation for you. Further, of course, the government that is doing the displacing, that is to say the state government, is also a democratic government. And states displace cities all the time in, in ways big and small. So many of you, we, I mean, we talked a little bit uh, recently about the various fights about preemption. Preemption, when a state has a law to repeal a specific city policy, that's displacing local democracy, but it's really replacing one level of democracy with another level of democracy. By the way, I have somewhat mixed feelings about emergency managers. This is not meant to be an entire endorsement of them. But one of the things we know about defaults is they have external effects. That is to say, a default in one place will affect not just the residents of that place, but residents of other places. I know one of the things that you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier with state defaults, you call uh, Arkansas the American Argentina. Can you give us a little more background on how you came to that? So there are three big periods of state government defaults in American history. In the 1840s, um, following the Panic of 1837, eight states in a territory default. The people had thought perhaps that the federal government would assume state debts the same way it had done after the Revolutionary War. Uh, but the Congress rejects this, and then the eight, eight states in a uh, seat seats in a territory default. Arkansas is one of those states. The second big period of defaults were after the end of Reconstruction, that Southern states uh, all decided that the debts incurred by Reconstruction-era governments were illegitimate, and they default on those debts. Uh, and Arkansas is one of those states. Then in the 1930s, only one state defaults, uh, uh, following a huge crash in property tax revenues and other revenues that had been used to support a massive road building 
exercise. So, uh, and this again is Arkansas. What Arkansas did in the 1920s leading up to this default is really reminiscent of what happened in Puerto Rico. They were one of, they were a small state, poor state, and they were by some nations, the third leading borrower of all of all state government. They were giant. They just borrowed, the local governments borrowed, the state government borrowed, everyone borrowed, and then they defaulted. Arkansas, during these periods, it was interesting is that when they're, after a default, uh, governments get barred from bond markets for a while. And so after the 1880s defaults, Arkansas, like all the other southern states, it can't, can't sell its bonds on the New York and Chicago markets. But as soon as they can, they go on this binge um, and people lend them money and they default again. So I call it the American Argentina because, I mean, that's basically Argentina's story, which is Argentina defaults, bond markets forget, lend the money, they default again, bond markets forget. I had a couple other alternatives. So Detroit has defaulted a number of times um, in its history. Mobile, Alabama has defaulted several times. And so there are a couple of other contenders, but I feel like Argentina deserves the title, all things told. Keeping on the chapter nine theme for a little bit, you have some interesting ideas in this book about the way that defaults uh, have been managed and maybe how they could be managed. Sort of in that order, what, what has not been working in your view and uh, what does a better default look like? Among other things, I'm a big fan of Chapter 9 as an institution. I think one of the things that's notable is that the the international sovereign bond market has been groping towards and talking about its failure to create a bankruptcy regime for that would be a court-managed method rather than the informal methods like the London clubs and Paris clubs for dealing with international sovereignty. And we happen to have one here in the United States. It's a pretty exciting thing if you think about it in that way. Chapter nine provides certain like real benefits to the uh, defaults. And of course, states don't have access to chapter nine. And we have over the history had lots of local defaults without chapter nine. If a government is going to default, chapter nine provides some really big benefits. One is the fact that insolvency has to be determined by a judge and not just by a politician provides, I think, some confidence to other jurisdictions that this jurisdiction is really hard off and not just opportunistic. And secondly, it provides a coordinating mechanism for everyone to get together and to allow for some equal treatment, not perfect equal treatment, but some equal treatment and at least some court managed treatment of different types of creditors. Obviously, creditors after bankruptcy are all angry all the time. They all think they should have gotten more. Um, certainly, bondholders have been very angry about the, the kind of greater protection that pensioners have gotten in a lot of public bankruptcies. But bankruptcy, I think, relative to non-bankruptcy or the absence of bankruptcy, provides greater protections for equal treatment for creditors, which should theoretically encourage lending on the front end. What could be better about Chapter 9? Well, I think Chapter 9 is good. It could be bigger. One problem we see in a lot of municipal bankruptcies is that there are a lot of overlapping jurisdictions that each have fiscal problems. So I start the book off talking about the city of Chicago. Well, the city of Chicago is in many ways our most indebted city with our most indebted school district in one of our most indebted counties with some of our most indebted transit agencies uh, in our most indebted state. So you have a lot of overlapping governments, all of which have fiscal problems. When Detroit went bankrupt, notably the Detroit school district, which is the exact same boundaries as the city of Detroit, uh, was effectively bailed out by the state government. Police pensions took a hit, but teacher pensions didn't. That's a little strange. They're both promises made by the same people just operating through, through different entities. And so one thing I advocate in the book is broadening Chapter 9 to allow for filings by multiple jurisdictions to happen at the same time. This could coordinate strategic behavior between the two of them, but also could result in smaller cuts for each for all of them. That if 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 both teachers and police officers had to cut, they each have to take a smaller and that and, that, and that's a pretty attractive thing. 
one of the things I think that states should have access to chapter nine, following David Skeel's uh, prominent argument about this. And the argument is roughly the same, which is uh, states, unlike cities, are um, always going to have enough capacity to actually pay their debts. What would chapter nine provide in this context is a tool to state, to state governments that they could rely on to avoid for themselves having in the context of a situation where they don't want to pay their debts or no longer are able to politically pay their debts, um, that they could rely on a court to say what is excessive and not excessive um, and take it out of the hands of kind of everyday politicians. Um, and I think that that would be a useful tool in certain contexts. Again, states, no state has defaulted since the 1930s. And so I don't expect even if you expanded chapter nine to states that we would start seeing a lot of filings or anything. Um, but um, uh, I think it might be in a potential future crisis, a useful tool for states to have. As a follow-up on that, you'd mentioned one of the values of, the, of having courts do this is that courts are maybe a little bit posi better positioned to be able to determine sort of actual austerity or actual ability to pay for more opportunistic types of behavior. Certainly that's been one of the criticisms of chapter nine is, is that opportunistic behavior on the part of local governments, especially as it relates to things like pension obligations, thinking that bankruptcy is kind of the only way through this, the only way that uh, we can drive the kind of bargain that we need to drive with labor, for instance. Are the courts in a position to deal with that the potential dimension of strategic behavior as well as they are able to determine the actual kind of fiscal financial solvency questions? The I think the question is like compared to what? One thing I'd say is that uh, is that Chapter Nine has some real constitutional limits on what it can do. A bankruptcy court can't order a government to raise taxes, cut spending, or sell anything, and that's a real limitation on their power to tell a local government to do anything. Now, there are people who think that they can take advantage of some of the things they have to approve in order to say, "Have you done enough?" But they can't. They can't directly order anything, and so. Uh, when we ask the question is like, are they doing enough policing of opportunistic behavior? I, I think the question is, again, compared to what? You know, I, it's one of these things, it's like the, you lend to a government, it's gonna be political, period. That's what lending to a government is. It makes, it's why, you know, it's what you get certain types of benefits from lending government. They have a lot of, a lot of security that companies don't have, but you're in, it is a necessarily an inherently political entity that you are, they're run by people run by governments usually almost always though not always elected by people or at least certainly responsive to people elected by people and so trying to get out of the get the politics out of the mutual bond industry is to me like a misunderstanding of what it is that you're doing and and to that respect too uh, pensions and and the idea of cutting pensions even if you technically can do it in bankruptcy as you say it's it's sort of the last thing that anybody wants to do because people are people i mean i remember speaking with uh, one of the uh, local officials in Stockton, uh, while while they were in the middle of exiting from bankruptcy, and they they slashed their their uh, retiree health care, but they I think barely touched or or maybe even didn't cut pensions because it just it, the the councilwoman I was speaking to was just like it broke her heart to even do that, and it's much easier to just cut bondholders who live far away and you don't see their faces. <laughs> Well, it depends. So again, you mentioned Central Falls. Central Falls went the other way entirely. So pensions took a big hit in Central Falls. And that's largely because of the way state law interacted with the local bankruptcy. So uh, in Rhode Island, the state, state legislature passed a law giving bondholders a statutory lien on local revenues, which effectively put them in front of line ahead of pensioners. 
Um, and so in Detroit, we faced, and this was kind of most fought in Detroit, which was the question of like, is it okay to treat pensioners better in the in a plan of adjustment than other types of unsecured creditors? And this kind of followed a big debate in the scholarly literature between bankruptcy lawyers. And there's a really good bankruptcy law argument that that's not allowed. But in practice, in the context of chapter nine, the court said, hey, well, there's two reasons why this should be allowed. One is that it's within the jurisdiction's right to say that the future effects of not paying pensions are going to be worse than the future effects of not paying bondholders. That is to say, it's going to affect our our ability to hire more than it will affect our future ability to borrow. Whether that's true or not, is at least within their range of like reasonable decision-making. And the second thing they said is that the state constitutional pension clauses generally are a little stronger than the ordinary contract clause. So they usually include the language diminish or impair as opposed to just impair which is the way contract clauses, including the federal contract clause, are opposed. Um, and the court said that this provides some kind of normative justification. Even if you can cut pensions, it says, well, you know, it's within the context of the government of Michigan. This is somewhat allowable. I think that there's a couple of questions we should ask about this and this kind of broader stories. One is, to what extent should we think about reforming our state constitutional pension requirements in ways that, because some of them, uh, not Michigan's actually, but some of the other ones, include some kind of both court interpretations and in- intentions in the case of the Illinois Constitution that are much more than just diminishing. They're like very extreme in, in, certain, in certain ways. This is the debate over the California rule for people who are interested in that. But a, a second thing is to say is like what chapter nine is the management of a management of a choice along with the trilemma in the setup of the book, which is that what happens in chapter nine on some fundamental level is we decide which creditors need to be harmed and how much. And we also decide how much money the go- local government can keep effectively going forward. And the way to understand that is the federal government through the, the bankruptcy judge is deciding on how to allocate harms between taxpayers and creditors and then among creditors. As you noted, as we talked about, like a, that's a political job um, and it's a policymaking job in a way that some people are a little uncomfortable with. Uh, it's a policymaking job because the because Congress were a law that effectively allocated this power to these judges. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think it is better than the alternatives. In a lot of your other work, you focus on some themes that you've touched on here already today, including in particular uh, land use reform and zoning reform. To what extent do you think that work can inform either a better response to fiscal stress or potentially uh, preventing fiscal stress? I'm a, uh, one of the big academic advocates for jurisdictions all over the country relaxing their zoning rules. What? How does this interact with fiscal affairs is a really interesting question. And the answer is that it would have extremely mixed effects depending on which jurisdictions you are. Some jurisdictions that face real fiscal problems are also extremely restrictive in their land use. So if you look at the state of California or the state of New York or the city of New York or the city of San Francisco or the city of Los Angeles, they all have fiscal challenges, um, but they also have underlying the choice effectively to print money. That is to say, they could simply allow more housing to be built, which would have the effect of ha- allowing lots of new people and it would drive prices down and they have lots of new inflows of people. That's what having excessive land use uh, laws means effectively. And that this would, in, over time, reduce their fiscal stresses. That is to say, it would, first of all, allow people allow people who are someone you know still richer than average to move in but also it would because the government would be largely bigger their existing debts would be a smaller share of the overall budget this would also by the way have big 
economic expansionary effects on the broader country. That is to say, allowing people to move in to jurisdictions where they can earn higher wages would have very big effects on the economy. One of the interesting things about this is that it would have a negative, if California and New York and uh, Connecticut and all jurisdictions, Massachusetts did this, it would have a negative effect on other jurisdictions. That is to say, these people would have to come from somewhere. Where they would come from would be other places. And this might have negative fiscal effects on jurisdictions from which people moved. Um, and so we frequently talk about the way in which California pushed people or leaving California to move to Texas or Montana or Wyoming. Some people credit that to California's high taxes, and there's probably a little bit of that is true, but largely it's due to the housing costs in California. It just costs too much to live in the nice parts of California, um, uh, and that's why people leave to go to Montana or Wyoming or wherever. It's just cheaper houses. Um, and if that ceased to be the case, then the huge benefits those jurisdictions get from flow out people leaving would cease to exist and would reverse. Like, Population flows in fiscal affairs is like a really interesting set of, and you can find some really kind of really dramatic effects. So one of my favorites is that uh, I, a number of jurisdictions in the Orlando area had like mentioned in their um, in their when they're trying to sell bonds how many doctors and other things were moving from Puerto Rico in response to Puerto Rico's fiscal crisis because it was so notable you had these big population flows and so the um, the long run fiscal nature of jurisdictions is downstream from their population flows and so in part that's resident choice. That is to say, people will leave bad situations and move to good ones, but it's also partially a choice of their housing policies. Well, Professor David Schleicher from Yale Law School, author of the new book, In a Bad State, Responding to State and Local Budget Crises. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Public Money Pod. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks again to Professor Schleicher. That was uh, uh, such a, a fun and energetic conversation. We could have talked for hours, I'm sure, um, made this like a, a three-parter podcast <laughs> on municipal distress, but uh, uh, we, we, kept it, we kept it shorter than it could have been. Um, I want to kind of go uh, to, to spin off of, of part of what our, our conversation um, covered, which is emergency managers and, and municipal distress. I wanted to bring attention to a story I wrote uh, not a little while ago. It's not quite a, quite a rip from the current headlines, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's in the vicinity, we'll say. It's uh, one of my long story short newsletters I wrote on Chester, Pennsylvania, after they had their mayoral technically primary um, but in Chester, the primary will does decide the the eventual winner. It's a largely democratic city, and Mayor Kirkland had been uh, had been mayor of Chester for almost ten years. Um, and prior to that, he was in the state legislature for a couple of decades. So longtime politician in the area, very um, comfortable in in where he stood in terms of of his his political legacy that that he he felt he had. But interestingly enough. Um, to, to the professor's point about cities that are in muni municipal distress, perhaps not actually not doing a good job anymore of representing their electorate, Mayor Kirkland was voted out and it was it was not not even close. Uh, he was challenged. He had a couple of challengers. One of them just kind of blew everyone else out of the water. The current uh, Stefan Roots, who is currently on the city council, won the mayoral primary with 61% of the vote. And uh, Kirkland did come in second place with 22%. But the 
interesting thing to me is that to me, this seems like a major turning point for a city that has long struggled in terms of political leadership, in terms of financial management. Um, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that the relationship between the elected officials and the appointed receiver for Chester is one of the most contentious I have ever seen. And so with this change of leadership, certainly the electorate has spoken in, in regards to the change they want to see. And I think it's widely expected that that contentious relationship will start to resolve under under new leadership. And so the larger takeaway also in terms of, of what happened in Chester is just that when, when a city files for bankruptcy and you are mayor, you're probably not going to win re-election. And that is, that is the overarching uh, lesson for any city in in fiscal distress is that, uh, while I did say earlier in this podcast, there's no one person who's at fault, the voters will have a say about that. And so it's, uh, it's just interesting to me what happens in terms of elections while a city is in, in bankruptcy in particular. I mean, there's municipal distress, but bankruptcy has its own kind of headline effect and wake up call, I think, to to the electorate that that sort of changes changes how people view their elected leaders. Any additional thoughts on on that that topic or or kind of takeaways for you, Justin? Yeah, I'm glad we're having a chance to to talk about it. Your reporting on Chester's been great. I'm glad to see us uh, highlight it a little bit more. I think the the point you made there at the end, I think, is something that doesn't get I think enough attention. When we talk about bankruptcy, both uh, as an academic subject as well as something that's actually happening out in the markets, it's rare. These are we we talk a lot about the instances of bankruptcy that that have happened or or severe fiscal distress on the brink of bankruptcy. Whenever that happens, it gets a lot of attention. And there's always this question of how did how did we get there? You talked at length in your work on how it's a group effort and it usually spans multiple jurisdictions or multiple electoral uh, regimes and. You know, those are all really, really important points about kind of the, the voter behavior that leads up to this. I think the, the, the point about bankruptcy that's often overlooked is some of the non-financial impacts, including and in particular, it really does activate the electorate in a big way. Uh, it's amazing how you can have fiscal stress and fiscal stress and fiscal stress, but then the minute there's a state takeover, or the minute the bankruptcy label is slapped on that jurisdiction, it somehow activates a very different kind of public engagement. Uh, that's probably not a bad thing. The question is, can, is there a way to get that public engagement a little bit sooner? Once you go to bankruptcy, certain kinds of options are off the table and you end up taking a very specific course of action for better or for worse. Is there a way to get folks engaged in some of these issues long before you get to that point? That's kind of in some ways an unresolved question. Um, and maybe the answer is no. Maybe the answer is you just, you need the, the, uh, hammer that is, uh, bankruptcy, the scarlet letter that is bankruptcy to, to really capture people's imaginations. Uh, but, you know, your work and others on this, on this really does highlight what happens and what leads up to it. And, and the question of, does it have non-financial effects that we ought to be paying more attention to is, I think, interesting. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her Substack Long Story Short.
That's long story short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Hour.